Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery parts of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. From Wyoming Catholic College, this is the After Dinner Scholar Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. The quotation I read comprises the first sentences of Herman Melville's 1851 novel, Moby Dick, a vast, sprawling work that is about, among other things, whaling. Dr. Elizabeth Race, a faculty member at Thomas Aquinas College in California, was our guest lecturer here at Wyoming Catholic College in March. After completing her undergraduate work at Thomas Aquinas College, Dr. Reyes earned her master's degree and doctorate from the University of Dallas. Her dissertation was entitled, Ishmael's Cetological Quest, A Progression of Imagination in Melville's Moby Dick. Dr. Reyes was kind enough to join us for this podcast. I've heard Moby Dick described as a novel, possibly as an epic, or possibly as a cultural commentary. What is this book? What are we dealing with here? That's a wonderful question. Um, this book, it seems to me, is something that is more than just a novel. I was asked recently whether I thought that it was one of the great American novels or even the great American novel. But my response to that is, it's more than a novel. This book is a work of literature on the level of the Iliad, Dante's Divine Comedy. It seems to me it's one of the great works that in, in a way transcends genres. I do think that it has epic aspects to it. I think it is a novel. It, it was written in the time of novels, even though it really pushes the envelope on that. But I think that it, in a lot of ways, is a poem, even though it's not written in verse. There's parts of it that are just so beautiful, iambic pentameter-esque. And um, so it seems to me I'd call it a poem or a literary work, even though it is also an epic, a novel. There's tragedy in there. I think it's also a comedy. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us about Herman Melville. Who was he? What did he do? What did he believe? Okay, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Okay, Herman Melville. Well, he was an American author. He had traveled the world. He'd written some travel novels and gotten kind of famous, become kind of a known to be a sex symbol in some ways because of his scandalous writings about what had happened among the cannibals. But then he read Shakespeare and he had decided earlier, he'd try to write a work called Marty that was more allegorical. He was always searching for meaning. He wasn't satisfied with just being sort of a famous travel writer in a kind of scandalous, scintillating way, but he wanted something with depth. So after having read Shakespeare, he kind of later in life into his, well, 20s, <laughs> 20s or 30s, but he decided he wanted to write something something great. And it seems to me this is Moby Dick compared to everything else that he's written that I've read anyways, it's really on another level. So he, he was descended from a, a somewhat famous family. What did he believe? That's a really good question. I, I mean, he, he was raised in kind of the Protestant Christian milieu, 
But he was, as a lot of people were at the time, intellectuals, he was questioning these beliefs. So um, there are letters that he exchanged with Hawthorne and entries into Hawthorne, Nathaniel Hawthorne's journal, where he writes about how Melville was constantly wrestling with this question of, is there a God? Who is God? And I recently just read a journal entry where um, Hawthorne wrote that Melville said, this was after Moby Dick, like in 50, uh, 1856 or so, he said, Melville says that he's determined to be annihilated, but yet he wrestles with it. He can't, he can neither believe nor not believe. And, and he said, what else did Nathaniel Hawthorne say about that? He says that if he, he's not religious, but if he were to become religious, he would be the most devout and deeply pious person. So he had this like nobility and depth. Hawthorne said that Melville deserved salvation more than any of us, despite his wrestling with belief. I noticed he dedicates the book to Hawthorne. Yes, they had a they had a, a literary friendship that was that was deep, and I think Melville appreciated that Hawthorne would talk about deep matters, about God, about the universe. Now, several times I tried to read Moby Dick when I was young, and finally, an English professor friend told me, "Keep in mind, it's meant to be extremely funny." Um, and with that in mind, I fell in love with the book. How does Melville employ humor? What's what's the humorous aspect of it? Oh, that's probably one of my favorite, favorite parts of this book. Um, I, I recently read something, someone sent me something from the LA Times, an interview with Karen Joy Fowler, who said, nobody told me Moby Dick was so funny. <laughs> and I think readers continue to discover this. Um, it seems to me that the narrative Ishmael's wit and comic outlook is what makes this novel able to be what it is. So people ask me the question, why do we spend so much time talking about the body of the whale and the whale line and the monkey rope and all of these things? But it seems that to me, Ishmael who's experienced this and who's telling the story has a comic outlook. Part of that is humor and part of that is hope. And there's this sort of flexibility that he has. So his, his wit, is able to take and incorporate very serious things and, and seemingly trivial things and ancient things and brand new things and mysterious things and sort of bring them all together and ponder them in this deep, wonderful way. I also um, would say that Ishmael, the narrator's humor, the sense of humor um, that Melville gives him is one of the I think it's made me love America more <laughs> because <laughs> he's got this amazing sort of American sense of humor. Like when, when Tashtigo falls into the whale's head and the whale's head falls into the sea and Queequeg goes, dives down to go get him out with a sword. He uses, uh, the narrator uses the analogy of a woman giving birth, which is just ridiculous because this is a terrifying passage. Like there are, these men are about to be drowned inside a head, inside the ocean. But these like life and death matters are taken with this sense of humor that I think is partly taken from the actual whaling profession where you have to have a sense of humor or you'll go crazy. But also this sort of frontier humor where against the elements, there continues to be this hope and the humor is part of what um, makes that persist. Well, and there's a certain amount of cultural critique that's yeah, going absolutely. on with the humor. Yes. The, the uh, the cook who preaches to the sharks <laughs> <laughs> using the language of a liberal sermon at that time. Yep. 
with, with, with a heavy accent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's amazing. At the same time as, as there's humor, I read one commentator who wrote, quote, in Moby Dick, Melville went farther into the mystery of man's death-bound plight than any other American writer has done before or since. Close quote. And that, that's not very funny. Mm. Um, how does that, how does that, is it just primarily about death? Oh, goodness. <laughs> is it primarily about death? I don't, I don't know. I think it's about everything. This is an encompassing vision. I don't know how he does it, but I think Shakespeare's another one who does it as well. And Dante, Melville is able to dive so deep, or his narrator Ishmael is, into the darkest, most terrifying aspects of human nature, of the cosmos, of the relation with the um, spiritual, the divine. And at the same time, I think, because it seems to me it's a ultimately a comic vision, that the darkness and depth is brought up at this is sort of brought up by this hopeful upward movement. And um, I think the end of the novel being the way that it is, I don't know if we should give spoilers, but <laughs> um, <laughs> it seems like both the beginning and the end of the novel, Ishmael speaks of some sense of providence that he, when he first is in Loomings in the first chapter, he's talking about what made him actually go whaling instead of going on a merchant vessel. He says he's not really sure, but thinking about looking back on it, he thinks it had something to do with providence and he's not sure why, but he feels like there's this larger hand moving him. And then at the end of the novel, his preservation from death, the language is used of um, him being protected from the, the unharming sharks and the sea hawks having sheathed beaks. It seems like he's being protected for something and that quotation from Job, I alone have escaped to tell about it, is, um, seems to be that he's witnessing something terrifying, but he's being preserved to tell about it. And there's a hopefulness in that as well, even though it's dark and terrifying. And he's floating on a coffin. He is. <laughs> I know. It's wonderful. Well, and the, and the book begins with him musing, basically, when I feel like I'm going to kill myself. Yes. Um, I, I think it's a good thing to go to sea. He, yes, but he puts it in such a humorous oh, way. Oh, it's that a riot. First, first you miss it. Yeah, when he says, whenever I, it takes a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off. <laughs> <laughs> then I counted high time to get to see as soon as I can. Yeah, it's my substitute for pistol and ball. So he's using this tongue-in-cheek manner, but I think so. I think he's feeling suicidal and even murderous inclinations that and so he feels like oh what i need to do is go to see yeah with a philosophical flourish cato throws himself upon his sword i quietly take to the ship <laughs> yeah what is ishmael's setological quest oh <laughs> <laughs> and, and and is is that quest successful oh goodness Yes, well, I think it's a quest of knowledge. So he says at the in that same first chapter in Loomings, when he's thinking about the motives that moved him to go on a whaling voyage, um, he says chief among these motives was the overwhelming idea of the great whale himself. Such portentous and mysterious monster roused all my curiosity. So it seems like he's being drawn along by this, at this point, idea of the whale 
But as he proceeds, as he just, well, he's going along for the ride initially, but he can't help but be involved. He gradually, it seems to me, comes to know the whale in deeper and deeper and more corporeal ways. So he starts off, you know, before we even get the famous lines, call me Ishmael, we get two sections, the etymology and the extracts. And there, the first one is just different words in different languages for whale. And the other one is just a bunch of statements taken from various kinds of books, all sorts of books, all the Bible, Paradise Lost, the Fairy Queen, all the way up to like children's nursery songs. And I don't want to say random because I'm sure they're not random, but books I've never heard of about whaling voyages, etc. And he's just looking at different ways of knowing the whale. And then as he proceeds, he sees through whaling what a whale acts like, what their body looks like as they cut them up in the whaling procedure he sees inside. What are their eyes like, the spout, the tail, the blubber? And it seems to me that when he hears Ahab speak about this whale as a kind of terrifying, demonic sort of presence, he goes with that at the time. But then as he gets to know the whale, um, he starts to see, wow, it's flesh and blood like us. They have families like us you hear about in the Grand Armada. They're both like very other, very different from humans, but have similarities as well. So that by the time you get to the end and we have the final conflict, this the image and idea of the whale has been filled out by these concrete corporeal realities. So it seems to me that that cetological quest, cetology being study of whales, he's learning about whales, he's presenting that for the reader, and so we get to see this filled out vision. And I do think it's successful insofar as he's he says at one point, unless you own the whale, you are but a provincial and sentimentalist in truth. And so there's some sense that knowing the whale is the key to everything, to knowing about the cosmos, about the workings of God with nature. And he's not able to be comprehended. He's not able to be, so owning doesn't mean you have him all and there's nothing left that you don't know. But it does mean increasing knowledge leads to awe, reverence, respect, and this kind of depth that he's able to bring back um, and help the world learn about these things as well. And the whale is still mysterious. Yeah, he's still mysterious. So he's unknowable in one way, but not in another. He's not a, unknowable insofar as he's not able to be comprehended, but he's not unknowable in that there's nothing we can learn about him. Now, your lecture at Wyoming Catholic College uh, that is available on our college website is entitled A Gentle Joyfulness and focuses not only on Moby Dick, but on Dante's Divine Comedy. Tell us just a little bit about that. Give us a teaser. Okay, <laughs> okay. It seems to me that when Ishmael proceeds through this quest, that he's proceeding in a way that's very much like Dante in Dante's Divine Comedy. So Melville did read the Divine Comedy. He did use it. There's references in Moby Dick to the Divine Comedy. And a relatively recent finding, I guess it was in the 90s, uh, 1990s, was that at least if you take underlining in a book to be a sign of someone being most interested in something, he, he was most interested in the Paradiso, which I found fascinating because it seemed to me that the latter parts of Moby Dick had a lot of feelings of a paradisal vision, especially when you're seeing the white whale himself. So it, it 
seem to me that there's a way in which Ishmael's progression is like Dante's. So, um, and I'm not the one to say this, um, a critic, Boehner Cowan, wrote about this particular part that like Dante is both the narrator of the book, he writes his book, but he's also a character in it. He's the main character. So is Ishmael the character, a character on the whaling voyage, but he's also the narrator. He's also writing the story. So it seems to me that Queequeg is a lot like Virgil as a guide. So Virgil was Dante's guide in the, in the Inferno and Purgatorio. Queequeg guides Ishmael through part, through the first part of his journey. And it seems to me that the analog to Beatrice is the whale. <laughs> so that's a teaser. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, it makes me want to read the book again. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to listen to the lecture, A Gentle Joyfulness, you can find the audio posted at our college website, wyomingcatholic.edu. Your podcast app, allows you, among other things, to rate podcasts and to share individual episodes with friends. If you enjoy these After Dinner Scholar podcasts, would you be willing to give us a rating and to share an episode or two with friends who might also enjoy and benefit from the shows? That will, in turn, give us greater visibility on the app and introduce the podcast to a larger audience. Thank you very much. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.